Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 60. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today we are going to be making part two of an earlier episode entitled Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And so this is going to be another reading from that book of general advice. And instead of Hector this time, I'm going to be getting Caroline's reactions to some of the readings in the book. So here we go. Chapter 70. Remember that you become what you practice most. Repeated practice is one of the most basic principles of most spiritual and meditative paths. In other words, whatever you practice most is what you will become. If you are in the habit of being uptight whenever life isn't quite right, repeatedly reacting to criticism by defending yourself, insisting on being right, allowing your thinking to snowball in response to adversity, or acting like life is an emergency, then unfortunately, your life will be a reflection of this type of practice. You will be frustrated because, in a sense, you have practiced being frustrated. Likewise, however, you can choose to bring forth in yourself qualities of compassion, patience, kindness, humility, and peace, again, through what you practice. I guess it's safe to say that practice makes perfect. It makes sense, then, to be careful what you practice. This isn't to suggest that you make your entire life into a great big project where the goal is to be constantly improving yourself, only that it's immensely helpful to become conscious of your own habits, both internal and external. Where is your attention? How do you spend your time? Are you cultivating habits that are helpful to your stated goals? Is what you say you wanted your life to stand for consistent with what your life really stands for? Simply asking yourself these and other important questions and answering them honestly helps to determine which strategies will be most useful to you. Have you always said to yourself, I'd like to spend more time by myself, or I've always wanted to learn to meditate, yet somehow you've never found the time? Sadly, many people spend far more time washing their car or watching reruns of television shows they don't even enjoy than they do making time for aspects of their life that nurture their hearts. If you remember that what you practice you will become, you may begin choosing different types of practice. So Caroline, when listening to that, what are some thoughts that occur to you? What's your general reaction to that reading? Listening to it, I was like, yes, if you practice kindness, you will be a kinder person. If you smile more, you will actually be a happier person. Generally, it made a ton of sense. And I mean, I think what it says about how we say, oh, I want to learn how to do this or do this. I mean, it's a well-known phenomenon to have bucket lists, right? I mean, how many things on those bucket lists do people actually accomplish? And there's so many things that I've always been like, I really want to learn how to ballroom dance or I really want to perfect my skill at the guitar or I really want to read one book for pleasure a month. And we're all busy. And I find myself that instead of doing those things that I'd really like to get better at or improve on or things that I know that would be beneficial to my well-being and to who I am as a person, I often say, oh, I'm just going to watch a TV show that I like and sit in my bed. Or I'm just going to hang out with my housemates instead of practicing guitar because they're here and getting my guitar out of its box is hard. <laughs> And when I say hard, I mean it's work. Anything that you're trying to improve yourself on is work. At the end of a long day, you know that it'd be a nice thing to text your friend and say, hey, I didn't see you today, or it was great seeing you today. And that's work. And so you may not do it because of laziness. And that's not always the best thing for yourself, but that's oftentimes what we practice. 
Absolutely. And I agree that we become our practices. And of course, those people who have very healthy bodies or very healthy attitudes or anything have practiced that over time and have reminded themselves of long-term goals. And I think that's something human beings, and I know I'm generalizing, aren't naturally great at. We don't see the long-term, we tend to see the short-term. And so that's why people fall into various vices and bad habits, because like you said, it's work or in certain cases, it is hard to run a marathon. You have to work your way up to it and start small, but I agree, it's all about your practices. Here's chapter 56. Be grateful when you're feeling good and be graceful when you're feeling bad. The happiest person on earth isn't always happy. In fact, the happiest people all have their fair share of low moods, problems, disappointments, and heartache. Often the difference between a person who is happy and someone who is unhappy isn't how often they get low or even how low they drop but instead, it's what they do with their low moods. How do they relate to their changing feelings? Most people have it backward. When they are feeling down, they roll up their sleeves and get to work. They take their low moods very seriously and try to figure out and analyze what's wrong. They try to force themselves out of their low state, which tends to compound the problem rather than solve it. When you observe the peaceful, relaxed people, you find that when they are feeling good, they are very grateful. They understand that both positive and negative feelings come and go, and that there will come a time when they won't be feeling so good. To happy people, this is okay. It's the way of things. They accept the inevitability of passing feelings. So when they are feeling depressed, angry, or stressed out, they relate to these feelings with the same openness and wisdom. Rather than fight their feelings and panic simply because they are feeling bad, they accept their feelings, knowing that this too shall pass. Rather than stumbling and fighting against their negative feelings, they are graceful in their acceptance of them. This allows them to come gently and gracefully out of negative feeling states into more positive states of mind. One of the happiest people I know is someone who also gets quite low from time to time. The difference, it seems, is that he has become comfortable with his low moods. It's almost as though he doesn't really care because he knows that, in due time, he will be happy again. To him, it's no big deal. The next time you're feeling bad, rather than fight it, try to relax. See if, instead of panicking, you can be graceful and calm. Know that if you don't fight your negative feelings, if you are graceful, they will pass away just as surely as the sun sets in the evening. Caroline, what are some of your thoughts on that? This is so interesting because I wouldn't always think of myself as a happy person, but that description is so reminiscent of how I feel about my emotions and it kind of evokes our life episode and how I talked about how life is long and my philosophy is that someday it just isn't your day, but that doesn't mean that tomorrow isn't going to be your day and that's so true. Maybe I'm not thinking about this correctly in that I've never thought of being sad or low as necessarily something that needs to be overcome or thought through. Because for me personally, it's just like, I'm really sad right now and I'm going to be sad right now because I'm feeling sad right now. And that makes perfect sense to me. Then perhaps I go to bed and I wake up and I feel better, you know, and that's kind of encouraging to me. That means I'm a happy person. <laughs> I guess that's a really, that's familiar to me. I mean, what do you think? I feel very similarly. And I know as someone who does overthink a lot of things and relies way too heavily on his thoughts and on his mind that I should think less and be a bit more transparent with myself and allow myself to feel sorrow and pain and anger because those emotions are very real and very natural. And I do often question them or engage the temptation to fight them or overcome them in some way. And I think in many ways I come from either a culture or a background or some philosophy that states that if I'm passive and don't 
actively resist or fight those feelings that I'm doing something wrong and I'm engaging in weakness. And I agree with this philosophy. I think it's harder and maybe counterintuitive to some people, but I really like what's being said there. Exactly. I mean, what I don't think is addressed totally is how you share that experience. It kind of does make it seem like a personal experience. And that's one thing I do struggle with. Like when I'm sad, it's really hard for me to go to other people and say, I'm having a really hard time right now, or I'm really sad right now. So I think that's one thing that is good advice. I think you should share your sorrows with people, even though it's a downer. But I think it's important to not feel isolated when you're down. It's humanizing and it helps us relate to one another. Another important passage, chapter 49, resist the urge to criticize. When we judge or criticize another person, it says nothing about that person, it merely says something about our own need to be critical. If you attend a gathering and listen to all the criticism that is typically levied against others, and then go home and consider how much good all that criticism actually does to make our world a better place, you'll probably come up with the same answer that I do. Zero. It does no good. But that's not all. Being critical not only solves nothing, it contributes to the anger and disgust in our world. After all, none of us likes to be criticized. Our reaction to criticism is usually to become defensive and or withdrawn. A person who feels attacked Act is likely to do one of those two things. He will either retreat in fear or shame, or he will attack or lash out in anger. How many times have you criticized someone and had them respond by saying, thank you so much for pointing out my flaws, I really appreciate it. Criticism, like swearing, is actually nothing more than a bad habit. It's something we get used to doing. We're familiar with how it feels. It keeps us busy and gives us something to talk about. If, however, you take a moment to observe how you actually feel immediately after you criticize someone, you'll notice that you feel a little deflated and ashamed, almost like you're the one who has been attacked. The reason this is true is that when we criticize, it's a statement to the world and to ourselves, I have a need to be critical. This isn't something we are usually proud to admit. The solution is to catch yourself in the act of being critical. Notice how often you do it and how bad it makes you feel. What I like to do is turn it into a game. I still catch myself being critical, but as my need to criticize arises, I try to remember to say to myself, there I go again. Hopefully, more often than not, I can turn my criticism into tolerance and respect. So Caroline, before you respond, I'm curious to know, in that we both share the community of Kenyon College, what you think the student's relationship with criticism tends to be, if you were going to give a broad statement. And then, of course, I am curious to hear your personal experiences. I think criticism, especially in talking about a community, it's often in the form of gossip. So I think it's a pastime in a lot of ways. It's really easy to do. And everyone knows everyone here. So it's easy to criticize people because we are in a bubble and therefore everything is hyper magnified. We're not thinking about how this really impacts us in the long run. And I think in listening to this passage, it really counters in a lot of ways what I've been taught in my anthropology classes, which is to be critical. And I think this passage touches on criticizing others, criticizing people, criticizing people in your periphery. Being critical, however, is important to some extent because you need to be aware of these systems and structures in which you participate. And I don't think saying to never criticize is solely a good thing. I think you need to 
be able to have opinions and judgments about certain things because there are some people that are terrible people and I think you should be able to criticize them. Even in our very insular community, if there is someone who isn't treating someone correctly, then yeah, I don't think that's a really huge problem to criticize them. I think that brings awareness in some ways. But yes, more often than not, it's a way people connect with each other. I'm not going to say it's meaningless because it is a way people connect with each other, especially when there's not much else to talk about. So they, they talk about other people because it's a way of deflecting maybe more important topics. But it definitely doesn't do a lot of good either. I do notice myself being very critical of others. And I agree with the author here that it says a lot about ourselves in that we speak in a language of criticism often and therefore think it's how the world operates. And I hear what you're saying, that criticism is valid and often necessary. But I do think looking back at the habits passage that we read and the practices that we engage in, more often than not, I think we trick ourselves into believing that criticism is necessary when I do think there are alternative methods of confrontation and discussion about how someone's behaving, but I'm also not denying your point. I think you're absolutely correct in saying sometimes it is necessary. And in that it is a language, like I've said, sometimes it's the only way to adequately communicate with someone because they will understand you if you're criticizing. Now the final chapter, Caroline, I think you will particularly enjoy, and I'm eager to hear your reaction. Chapter 43, Become an Anthropologist. Anthropology is a science dealing with man and his origins. In this strategy, however, I'll conveniently redefine anthropology as being interested without judgment in the way other people choose to live and behave. This strategy is geared toward developing your compassion, as well as a way of becoming more patient. Beyond that, however, being interested in the way other people act is a way of replacing judgments with loving kindness. When you are genuinely curious about the way someone reacts, or the way they feel about something, it's unlikely that you will also be annoyed. In this way, becoming an anthropologist is a way of becoming less frustrated by the actions of others. When someone acts in a way that seems strange to you, rather than reacting in your usual way, such as, I can't believe they would do that, instead say something to yourself like, I see, that must be the way she sees things in her world. Very interesting. In order for this strategy to help you, you have to be genuine. There's a fine line between being interested and being arrogant, as if you secretly believe that your way is better. Recently, I was at a local shopping mall with my six-year-old daughter. A group of punk rockers walked by with orange spiked hair and tattoos covering much of their bodies. My daughter immediately asked me, Daddy, why are they dressed like that? Are they in costumes? Years ago, I would have felt very judgmental and frustrated about these young people as if their way was wrong and my more conservative way was right. I would have blurted out some judgmental explanation to my daughter and passed along to her my judgmental views. Pretending to be an anthropologist, however, has changed my perspective a great deal. It's made me softer. I said to my daughter, I'm not really sure, but it's interesting how different we all are, isn't it? She said, yeah, but I like my own hair. Rather than focusing on the behavior and continuing to give it energy, we both dropped it and continued to enjoy our time together. When you are interested in other perspectives, it doesn't imply, even slightly, that you're advocating it. I certainly wouldn't choose a punk rock lifestyle or suggest it to anyone else. At the same time, however, it's really not my place to judge it either. One of the cardinal rules of joyful living is that judging others takes a great deal of energy and, without exception, pulls you away from where you want to be. So, for obvious reasons, I thought this would be interesting to read with you, and of course, as usual, I'd love to know your thoughts. 
I had a little bit of a smile on my face while you were reading that, Kip, and that's because there's so many things that really do sum up anthropology in a lot of ways. Empathy, for one, is a huge part of anthropology and just trying to understand people without judging them. Those people might be different from you, might be very similar to you. Either way, chances are they're not going to agree with you on everything. It'd be kind of weird if they did, wouldn't it? Other parts I found amusing. Maybe, I don't know necessarily the context of this book but just the abstraction of saying be an anthropologist sounds kind of weird (laughs) Um, instead of being like don't be judgmental he might also have tried saying be more anthropological exactly anthropologists simply try to understand and explain why things are the way they are for a reason with an awareness that people are different and also another important thing that anthropology does that he doesn't touch on as much is just an awareness for why people are different and that could be especially in the u.s socioeconomically or general inequality why people are unequal and why we should still feel solidarity with those people and empathize with those people and not feel alienated from those people i think so often in this country class differentiation is really isolating to different groups of people and the rich can say oh the poor are just lazy and that's it and i think if we have empathy if we can look at a group of punk rockers in the mall and say oh that person is coming from a different background than me but that doesn't mean that i shouldn't have empathy and understand or try to get to know who these people are and where they're from even if they look differently from me then he's right. I mean, it's putting that practice into place. I also really loved what he said about interest being different than advocation. You can be interested in other people without saying that's the right lifestyle. That's how I want to live my life. And of course, those things can go together. But looking specifically at this podcast, I'm interested in a lot of really scary, confusing, unspoken aspects of our world and our lives. And there will be episodes in which we examine very dark actions, very dark people, dark periods in history. And I hope that our audience and others don't confuse that for being an encouragement of those behaviors, of those actions, of those moments that we examine. But I think it's really interesting and important to separate those two. You can be a student of life without advocating certain confusing or peculiar aspects of it. Exactly. I think it's really important that we don't incorporate our judgments and moral outlook onto the subjects we choose because just because we may not disagree with something doesn't mean it doesn't still exist in this world. So before we close the episode of the four chapters we read, any advice you would like the listeners to think on further or maybe analyze critically? Thinking back to the first one and putting practice into improving yourself, I think it's really important to reflect on what you aren't doing to improve yourself and why you might find that uncomfortable. For me personally, I always say to myself, I want to be comfortable being by myself. That's just something that I'm uncomfortable with. I'm uncomfortable being alone sometimes. We're all social beings, you know, I don't think it's an uncommon thought, but there are certain societal pressures where I'm a woman and I'm in part of this feminist movement and I want to be independent and I want to be comfortable being independent, but sometimes it's not comfortable, so... Very well said. I would encourage the listeners to think on the chapter on criticism and criticizing others especially. I think it's so easy to find fault in others and equally easy perhaps to find fault in ourselves, but positive thought goes a long way. And for those who do criticize a lot and are listening, just practice. Maybe take one day of your life where you promise you won't criticize anyone and see how you feel at the end of that day or that week. Give yourself a challenge to monitor and just observe. 
We should try that, Kip. We should try that and then see what happens and discuss it. Gladly, I'd be happy to. But of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have thoughts, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can reach us via email, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. You can, of course, subscribe on Stitcher and on iTunes. And please leave us an iTunes review. And if you email us the text of that review, you will be entered for a chance to win a $20 Amazon gift card, which we would, of course, love to give away. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.